some who call me Tim. The lights go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. Mike Mott, welcome again. It's Sunday night. Uh, well, actually, uh, uh, it's just now turned over to Monday morning for me. But uh, still Sunday night for you on the Outer Ends. Yes. On the PSN. On the PSN Radio Network. But soon. Soon. <laughs> soon. Time for the future. That's right. Soon. <laughs> and for anybody who is wondering, tonight our guest is... Uh, Brad Olson. Um, he is the uh, um, uh, he's a book publisher, event producer, award-winning author. Um, uh, his uh, publishing company is CCC Publishing, and um, he's just 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 a really fascinating guy. And I can't wait for us to uh, to to talk to him tonight. But uh, you know, first uh, we'll chit chat a little bit, just. Uh, just to get uh, get the microphone uh, microphones warmed up a little bit. How's that sound? Sounds good. And I did want to tell the listeners that uh, wanted to apologize. We had some technical difficulties last week, and the Jesse Johnson interview started thirty minutes late. This was a, this was a computer error with the scheduling software on the computer. But uh, hopefully, you guys caught that, and hopefully, you have been downloading the uh, episode from from the website so you can check out what JC had to say. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's the it's up on the archives. I mean, we try we try to get uh, our shows up uh, on our website in the archives section just as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, you also can find our shows on uh, the SoundCloud website as well as other uh, PSN radio programs. You know, Unraveling the Secrets, uh, Skywatchers, all them all them great shows. Right. So I, yeah, I just uh, I. I I highly encourage everyone to not only uh, download and listen to every single program that we've done, but also every single program that's on the PSN Radio Network. There's there's something for everyone. Right. Don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a, a very eclectic network. <laughs> yeah, that, that, there's a good way to put it, eclectic. <laughs> I like that, eclectic. It really is. Uh, so, Mike, what's uh, what's uh, new and exciting for you this week? Oh man, just this and that, and uh, I have some things I'm researching and experiencing and everything else. But I'm not going to talk about it right now until it's time to maybe maybe publish it. Uh, we'll see. Um, but uh, definitely cool. ne- never a dull moment. <laughs> oh no, that's that's true. That's true. Hey, I want to ask you: Did you hear that um, our friend uh, uh, David uh, Pilates, uh, who uh, has written the uh, Missing Four One One books, is uh, now trying to raise money to uh, to do a movie? 
Yeah, I heard uh, something based about that. On this. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a Kickstarter uh, going and is looking for uh, contributions. So, I mean, I, I I imagine this would probably be along the lines of like a documentary. At least I yeah. hope it is. And, and Which not, should uh, be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I just uh, when I first. Uh, when I first saw the announcement, you know, if you like the book, then you'll like the movie. I could just see him trying to do some kind of, you know, like bad, you know, like Sharknado type of <laughs> right, movie exactly. based on missing 411. But uh, as a documentary, you know, if they could get the uh, the right people, the, you know, the right producers, the writers, and, you know, the screenwriters and crew and, and all of that, it, it, it should make for an absolutely... Um, Fascinating documentary, scary documentary at that. Um, right now, they are, they have, um, about $65,000 raised so far. That's not bad. No, no, with a, uh, uh, going to get about a, uh, um, I think it's a $100,000 goal. You know, that's not, that's barely enough to get started though. Yeah, on a documentary. Yeah. Hopefully, he'll 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 find some sort of help out of Hollywood or or some other uh, funding source that will be interested in doing this. Well, it just uh, you know, I mean, they're considering the scope of all the cases that are in his book. Yeah, you know, I mean, a hundred thousand dollars really is just a drop in the bucket. I mean. Uh, um, I think about the uh, the documentaries that I used to work on uh, myself for, like uh, you know PBS and 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 other uh, um, companies, and I mean, <laughs> we would have oh my god, we would have plotted if we had a hundred thousand dollar budget. <laughs> of course, now we're talking about a few years ago. You know, times have changed, and uh, um, you know, considering. The amount of of work that will have to go into a quality film, you know, I mean, we're not just talking about somebody just taking out their, uh, you know, their little camcorder and 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 going out and you know shooting interviews and uh, putting it up on YouTube. No, I mean, they're this is something that they I know that they want to get get out to a very uh, you know uh, wide audience, so they. Uh, um, they really do. They, they they need the funds. So I can imagine that you know the the one hundred thousand dollars will be for the initial, um, you know, maybe. Gosh, I, I would hate to think that pre production would cost that much. But I mean, you know, a lot of times it does. Uh, then afterwards, um, you know, you have to consider post production costs, which you know, I mean that. That can cost you, you know, uh, easily another uh, $100,000, depending on uh, what kind of special effects that you want to incorporate, you know. Right. Well, if you Uh, want to do, you know, if you want to do recreations, kind of like they did in the original uh, Legend Legend of Boggy Creek, uh uh, you got to hire actors. Well, needless to say, the Legend of Boggy Creek didn't hire the highest quality of, of, uh, you know, trained academy actors. <laughs> so, so, but well, but I you know, mean, they were they were going for cent- yeah. You get what you yeah. pay for, but you know, he might be able to find people that could do it well and would be willing to do it just to be part of the project. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that would 
there are some pretty good actors like there out there now that seem like they'll get involved in quirky sort of things, you know, just to be involved in it. So maybe he'll find some some really good actors to be involved in it. Yeah, but you have to be careful. I mean, you don't want to get like you know. Uh, um First run, you know, name, you know, famous actors because then that distracts from the story that you're trying to tell. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? You know, people will be like, you know, hey, look, that's Brad Pitt, you know, <laughs> or you know, or whatever, rather than paying attention to the story. That's um, right. I agree that, that they're trying to put out, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I, I wish them the, uh, the 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 very best of luck. You know, in this in this venture, because I do, I think that the uh, uh, the whole missing four one one scenario is something that that deserves some really serious attention, and it's just it's a shame that um, that it's not as widely known, and that um, um, even more uh, proper dedicated attention is not being paid um, to these these extremely strange cases right yeah, yeah. And, and it seems like they, it gets kind of swept under the rug you know I mean look we know that some people disappear because other bad people do things to them mm-hmm. you know we know that we know that um, a variety of things happen to people but that does not explain doesn't come anywhere near explaining the numbers that disappear every year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, there was a cast, and I and I wish I could remember uh, the, the the name of uh, the person that was uh, involved in this. But I heard David not too long ago talking about uh, somebody that, and I think you know he used to play. This is somebody that used to play like professional sports that had gone off by you know by himself on a uh, like a little uh, uh, like uh, canoeing trip. I mean, and he wasn't far away from his home either. You know, and and. The river that he was canoeing in was in a f- not a overly rural environment, and he uh, he called his wife and in a panic, I guess, and said that he was uh, he was being followed, uh, but he wouldn't elaborate over the telephone, and and he kept calling back several times, you know, in in this panic. And I mean, you know, we're talking about a grown man here. And uh, then he stopped calling, and uh, later they they found they found him dead, of uh, you know, with no uh, explained you know uh, reason on why he was dead. You know, right. he was just dead and uh, uh, naked, like a lot of the uh, people are found. You know, his clothes I don't think were ever found. Wow, that's pretty wild. It was, it was, and uh, um, and and I don't think they found his phone either. Uh, which was, you know, like uh, uh, one of the odd things about a lot of these more recent cases that involve people who have cell phones, because you know you can ping uh, a cell phone right. and get an idea of, of of where it's located at. But right. a lot of these cases, uh, uh, when the people are found, their phones are not with them, you know, right. and, and and the phones are never found. So it's like there's a new element being added to this. Right, um, you know, because of modern technology. Um, well, you know, the thing is that uh, I'm hoping that maybe some drones will 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 show some of these things, show what's going on. But you know, drones make noise. Um, yes, I yes. have a feeling that these things will hear the drones coming. Whoever's responsible for some of this, a lot of this stuff. So, 
Well, uh, Mike, uh, I'm I'm really anxious to uh, to get to our guest here, uh, uh, Brad Olson. Uh, so why don't we go ahead and um, go to a break, and uh, when we come uh, when we come back, we'll uh, uh, we'll bring brad into the show sounds good and uh, uh we can uh, we can take it from there so you're listening to uh, the outer edge of the psn radio network i'm tim swartz with mike mott when we come back we will be talking with uh, brad olson so please stay tuned we will be right back Professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application, Mobile Talk Radio. Imagine having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. You'll be surprised how easy it is to use. So I think what's going on here is that Obama is banking on unemployment falling. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Talk Stream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Conspiracy Journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange. We bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today. Some of this material may adversely affect you. Other pieces are meant to enlighten. Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, Time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to Mr. UFO8 at hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. MR UFO, the number 8, at hotmail.com. Mr. UFO8 at hotmail.com. 
Find out what they don't want you to know. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction. Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton. And I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress and the Ad Council. You're listening to The Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio. And welcome back to The Outer Edge, and that was uh, Tribal Music Warriors, uh, Sombrata uh, Blaze, that uh, that you heard coming back in, and a little bit in the background here. And that's, uh, that's a group that uh, that Mike found. Uh, yeah, that's a really cool group. Uh, it, it's comprised of a bunch of guys associated with Ron Kozakowski, who's a... Uh, Filipino martial arts instructor and uh, importer of excellent martial arts weapons from the Philippines. He's in uh, he's in Connecticut, I believe, and uh, so they put together this music, um, sort of to uh, music to do combat by. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to put it. Well, I I, I, I love their music. It's really nice. And, and, it is. And it's I, cool. And I really appreciate them allowing us to exactly. uh, uh, to use uh, uh, their their stingers um, on our show. So. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, so uh, we talked about this before we went on break, and I want to introduce uh, to our audience here Brad Olson. Brad, how you doing tonight? Hey guys, I'm doing great. Nice to talk to you both. Well, it's a it's a it's a great pleasure to to have you on here and uh, yeah, sure is. now yeah you, know, you know I see from uh, your 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 bio information Brad I mean it's just that you you seem to be very much kind of like a uh, uh, a Renaissance guy I mean you got a passion for writing um, but you go beyond you know uh, just just sitting around uh, book publishing uh, you you know I mean, you're a world traveler um, you uh, you're involved in the uh, um, uh, the, the the how weird street fair in San Francisco is that still going on? Oh, that's correct. Yeah, bigger and better uh, than ever. 
Oh, fantastic. And, uh, I mean, you did the uh, um, uh, uh, Sacred Places uh, uh, series of books, and uh, and now you're doing uh, the Future Esoteric books. And, I, and that's just, I mean, I've just barely touched, you know, all the stuff that you're involved in. Just skimming the surface. Yeah, well, you know, we just keep going on and on and accumulating all these uh, accolades, I suppose, and doing jumping jacks like the Renaissance man. Keep Keep it going. <laughs> Brad, where are you where are you physically located? Are you in I'm California? I'm in San Francisco, San Francisco, right in the fog bank, twenty blocks from the beach. Okay, I used to live in uh, Sunnyvale. Oh, okay, many years ago. Yeah, used to go to the city every now and then, but not that often. <laughs> I spent more time going up to like uh, Chico and Napa Valley and places like that. Nice. Yeah. yeah, Silicon Valley is uh, just going off the hook. My girlfriend uh, just got a real estate license and is training to be an agent. And right. uh, it, we got record sale prices and these bidding wars that can even go a million over the asking price. It's just crazy wow. right now. Well, when I was out there in the, in the mid to late eighties, it was uh, even then it was it was kind of like that. But the, the tech. The first tech slowdown had just happened, but it was about the time that the, that Apple was taking off and really getting started. And uh, I did work for, work for several companies as a freelancer out there. But even then, it, Silicon Valley. I mean, if you if you're not familiar with it, it's in the the Santa Clara Valley, right? Right. And it's got it's got mountains on two sides, and they kind of go down to the bottom like a like a sharp U shape. It's kind of like you're in a bowl, and it's a parking lot. From one side to the other, Silicon Valley is a parking lot. I mean, it's just, there's not a lot of green stuff to be found. Uh, of course, there's not a lot of green stuff in California anyway, but you know what I mean. There's not a lot of... <laughs> not right now. No no space goes to waste in Silicon Valley. Let's put it that way. Um, and I always was thinking, we had a few quakes when I was out there, and I was thinking, you know, this, this place is designed perfectly to be a spillover uh, valve for the bay. Yeah. <laughs> all you need is a is a tsunami to come in, you know, right there north of San Francisco, and it might get a little bit of San Francisco, but it's all going to end up in Silicon Valley. <laughs> that's absolutely right, and that that's what people think is that oh man, you live in San Francisco, you're going to get slammed by a tsunami. Well, I went and visited the tsunami uh, just a few weeks after the Indian Ocean one hit Sumatra and Thailand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could tell you that water seeks its own level, and there are places, uh, hotels, right on the headland when the waves right. hit, untouched, but right around the corner where it went flat, three miles of utter destruction. Wow. So water seeks its own level. It will go right through the Golden Gate. It'll slam West Oakland, and then all the rest of Silicon Valley on the low areas are just barely above sea level. A lot of that is already reclaimed land. So yeah, uh, yeah, they will the, suffer the, a lot the, more than the city will. Sure, right, right there to the north. Even back then, they had done landfill activity up there, um, north of Silicon Valley, along the bottom of the bay. I believe they had already reclaimed some of that, oh, and that's yeah. just going to turn into a mess if there's ever like a really big quake. I mean, that's gone. <laughs> yeah, they call it liquidification when the mm-hmm. big earthquake. All this landfill is the worst place to be. It's just liquefies yeah. and buildings can't uh, stand up in it 
I remember one night watching, there was a quake in the middle of the night, and I got up and walked out onto the balcony of the apartment complex, and, or the apartment, looked out at the parking lot, and you could see ripples going through the, the parking lot. And I thought, you know, I think I'm going to head back to the southeast because this, this is just... This is it's not working. I mean, you don't have any, at least with a tornado or a hurricane, you kind of get a warning that something's coming. <laughs> <laughs> not with earthquakes. Yeah, I was no, in Santa Cruz yet. where the epicenter was for the 89 quake, and I had just moved out here from the Midwest. And then uh, the earthquake hit, and we run out of the house, and like you said, you literally see the ripples coming yeah. across the land. I'd never seen anything like that. Yeah, and it's was, pretty freaky. Oh, I was in awe. I was laying on the ground feeling it, and people were like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, when, you're up, when, you're, when you're a couple stories up and you're watching it, watching it you know, and the, and the cars are moving up and down with it, you're thinking, hmm, now this building could fall down. Yeah. Um, but I, I had a buddy out there, a friend at the time, who was in showbiz. He was a wizard. He was a magician, but he went by the name of William Wizard. He lived in uh, Santa Clara. Not Santa Clara. He lives in, lived in Los Gatos. Um he was a really cool dude, and I lost touch with him over the years. But he uh, he was quite a character. Um, I bet uh, I I don't know if he's still around or not. But uh, he was all into all the the, the paranormal and the the uh, both the showbiz side and the and the real side of it. So I, was, I just wondered if you'd ever heard of him. Not him, but my sister lives there, and I know Los Gatos pretty well. Yeah, yeah, he had a nice place up in the up in the hills there. Thanks. I don't know. That's that's almost like going to somebody and saying, you know, oh, I got a I got a oh, friend yeah. who lives in Los Gatos whose name is uh, Bob. Do you know well, this guy? Know? <laughs> this guy is pretty prevalent. I mean, he was he was doing uh, doing stuff at the uh, the Magic Castle. Mm-hmm. He was involved in a, uh, a thing they had called the the Haunted something. I can't remember what it's the something woods which I helped him with a couple times, where they would do this big thing where they had this, this Halloween event there in Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, he was pretty much on the radar at the time. He was kind of like a local celebrity. Um, so Winchester was, Mystery House? No, it? it wasn't Winchester Mystery House. It was some kind of haunted woods thing yeah. that they did. I could probably find it if I, if I looked it up. But, uh, um, yeah, he was he was uh, a character, and, I, and he seemed like he uh, had a good grasp on things strange and and on the on, on the outer edge. Nice. So now, Bud, you said that uh, you you came from the the Midwest uh, originally. Yep. So now, uh, how did uh, uh, first of all, where from the Midwest, and uh, how did a uh, how did a, a boy from the Midwest get involved in all this? Yeah, great question. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a town called Arlington Heights, which is northwest suburbs of chicago and i went mm-hmm. to mount prospect high school and i can tell you there is no heights or mounts where i grew up it's as flat as a flat plain and that might have been part of the reason why i had wanderlust to get out of there so as soon as i graduated college in 1988 from illinois state university with a marketing and an art degree i just decided i wanted to travel so a couple of my uh, friends bailed on me and I just said, screw it, I'm going solo, and went to Europe and backpacked around for three months. Made my own uh, income, self-financed the trip, and thought I was so cool. Three months Mm. on my own, doing this through Europe. And then I'd meet these Australians and Kiwis. they say, three months, mate? We've been on the road for three years. Oh, my God. (laughs) How do you do that? 
So, well, you know, we work our way around, and you just keep going in one direction. You eventually wind up at home. So I, that was just always stuck in my mind that it, I'd love to do this while I'm still a young man. And uh, a couple years later, there was the opportunity to do that. I went to uh, Japan to teach English, made a pile of money, and uh, went on a one-way trip around the world. And that's really what got me started first as a travel writer uh, by visiting all these places. My first book is actually uh, about how other people can make their own trip around the world, and it's still in print. It's called World Stompers Global Travel Manifesto. And I still get an email occasionally from someone who read, read the book, and took the advice and went off on their own trip. and it, I mean, it's a life-changing experience uh, to do it. And for me, it was a way to have the experience of going to all these countries and monuments and being fascinated by how amazing these places were and then realizing that they have like metaphysical or spiritual qualities to them. And that was basically the uh, birth of my Sacred Places series of books, first with uh, Around the World and then Sacred Places Europe and Sacred Places North America, which has done so well. It's now in its second edition and still doing quite well. And then basically, if I can just finish my own bio here, it's when I went to these places and we're talking like the Great Pyramids and the Great Cathedrals of Europe, um, <clears throat> finding that there was more backstory to a lot and then this is what led into the esoteric series of books, especially in the first book, Modern Esoteric. I get into more of the deeper questions about how it was that this pyramid, the Great Pyramid, was built and more of the qualities of it and how whoever built it knew the Earth as a whole to put it right in the smack dab center of all the continents along the meridian lines, things like that, which have always stuck with me and I've always found to be so utterly fascinating. It had to extend beyond sacred places into these esoteric guides. And that's where I'm at today. You know, I I really wish that that more, in fact, I think everybody, you know, in the United States, uh, if given the chance, should get out of the country and travel. Yep. Oh. Absolutely. As Mark Twain says, uh, travel is fatal to prejudice and bigotry and so many other uh, negative emotions we have when we just live in our little provincial corner of the world. really gives you an education into uh, how the rest of the world lives and usually quite sustainably and happily. You know, you'd think with all the riches we have in America, or perceived riches, everybody would be the happiest in the world. That's not the case. No, Some of the not. happiest people I've ever seen are the poorest people. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, learning those life lessons is very valuable. I agree with you guys. Right. So, have, have you had... Can you say that you've had some very uh, strange, mystical, or... or paranormal or any, any type of anomalous experiences in these sacred sites? Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's another uh, aspect of these sacred places that led me to do a little more research on them into the esoteric subjects. And basically in 1997, I was traveling uh, around the whole Pacific Northwest with a group of people, and we 
found ourselves at Crater Lake up mm. in Oregon, not too far from the California border, wow. uh, which is the deepest lake in the continental U.S., and it is basically a collapsed volcano uh, that created a per- almost perfectly round lake which collapsed upon itself in the purest water as well because there's only rainwater that goes in. There's no outlet. So uh, it's, it's like 99.9% pure water, super blue, super crystalline, incredible clarity. You can see like hundreds of feet below water. So uh, one night in July of 1997, uh, some friends of mine and I, the campsite was sold out. It was high season. So we said, let's just go renegade camp on the very top of the highest point on Crater Lake, which is about 8,900 feet. We're out there watching the sunset, uh, six of us. Three started heading back up to the hill to the camp. Three of us were still sitting there, and all three of us saw this incredibly bright white light streaking slowly across the sky, heading right into the depths of Crater Lake. But yeah. before it got there, it just started breaking off into these blips. And that's the best way I can describe it. Just like perfectly square blips of light. Until it disappeared. And it lasted for about, say, 10 seconds. We saw the streak and then the blips breaking off. We just fell to the ground laughing and, and, and pointing. And did you see that? And we all saw it. We all described it exactly the same way. Right. It's still it's still daylight out, so it wasn't like a night phenomenon. We started running up the hill to go see if our other friends had seen it, and then a minute later we see the exact same thing happen over Mount Shasta, about 50 miles in the distance. Both of these locations, sacred places, both of these volcanic features, most UFO sightings in the world happen at volcanoes. Yeah. So it was just unbelievable that we saw it twice and for me it's like i want to know what that's all about i went back i couldn't get a straight answer you know so you get met with ridicule and disbelief if you try to ask a professional what this might be so then to me it just said there's there's a lot more to this that we're not being told well did you how close to the water in the lake did you do you think they got before they dissipated it was it was just coming into the rim of Crater Lake when the light started going into blip mode. So we never saw it actually enter the lake, nor any ripple or any physical effect. It was strictly just a very bright light. Now, it could have been some kind of high-tech laser beam. Could have been. Uh, to me, it seemed more like something interdimensional that was coming right. in. some kind of plasma or something. Yeah, that we're just yeah. catching basically the light signature well, of it. I don't know if you know this, but Tim and I both have books that look at the, the very strong evidence that there is a hidden aspect to our planet and that a lot of these anomalous beings and, and entities and things of this nature actually come from within our own planet, under our seas, under the crust of our planet, out of volcanoes, you know, that type of thing, out of cave systems. Yep. So that's very interesting. Yep. And the fact that it happened a minute later right over Mount Shasta, the exact yeah. same effect. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like it was going over the top. It wasn't like it was farther away. It was going smack dab into the middle of Mount Shasta, smack dab into the middle of Crater Lake. And if we know a thing about volcanology is that many volcanoes 
have enormous caverns uh, yes. within them, the magma chambers and so forth. So maybe these crafts or whatever they are are immune to the heat and prefer the protected environment out of sight, out of mind, basically, to right. do their operations here on Earth around these volcanoes. I mean, the one near Mexico City, I'm not going to get the pronunciation right, but Popocatépetl, something like that. Yeah. There are millions of people who have seen phenomenon over this volcano. Well, millions. Video. There's video of, of, of objects coming and going from the volcano. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this is, to me, this is evidence of a subterranean uh, presence on the planet, but I don't think it's, I think it's always been here. You know, I don't think it's, you know, I think it's something that if it can convince us it's from far away, then that's to its advantage because then we're not going to be looking where we should be sticking our nose as far as they're concerned. Right here. (laughs) Yeah. So I did some more snooping around Mount Shasta just to bookend this story here. And I actually have a uh, article on the Internet. People can find it called Discovering Forbidden Archaeology. And I found that on one of the plateaus near Mount Shasta, a very high elevation desert environment, is a top secret military environment that you Hmm. can't even go in there. But just on the periphery of it, I discovered all these incredible mounds that interact with water. They weren't filled with water when I was there, but we found the drainage canals, and it was almost like the water would come out, somehow get activated by these geometrically shaped mounds, and you can see pictures on this article that I posted uh, when I discovered them. And, and they may be able to create clouds from them. This is the best conclusion I could come up with. And Mount Shasta is renowned for these lenticular cloud formations. And right. basically, and you see them at Mount Rainier and Mount Hood, all the Cascade Volcano Mountains are famous for them. Lenticular clouds are among the rarest clouds there are. And they're very wide-shaped and flat, and they just hover right above the mountain. So get this. I have a friend up here at Mount Shasta who's also into this, and he lives there, and he watches the mountain every day. He sees these lenticular clouds come from the west, where the prevailing wind is always coming from, basically dock above Mount Shasta and then move off in different directions, sometimes mm. straight up and just disappear. So That's we think weird. they may be cloaking devices. And then, so sure. just to finish this story about these uh, these water mounds we found near a small town called Tenet. You could, we found them on Google Earth. First, a friend of ours up there said, we got to go check these out, and we wanted to do like a, a party one night. We did. We brought out some... Uh, speakers and made a little renegade party at, at these mounds and he says he sees these lenticular clouds sometimes come up from this plateau and dock at the mountain so that's pretty interesting if they're using clouds as a cloaking device right very interesting and there, there's a lot of bigfoot sightings around mount shasta too uh, you got that too a lot of cryptozoology mm-hmm. stuff well, there's also there's a long history of uh, people who live in the area um, meeting people 
coming down off the mountain that don't look quite human. A lot of times uh, they're 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 tall, almost like the uh, the description of the Nordic aliens, or you know, uh, George Damsky version of the aliens. A lot of times wearing long robes, and uh, uh, th- there's stories also of these uh, these beings coming into the uh, the nearby towns and right. uh, bu- and buying stuff from the stores, but not using money. You know, trading uh, using uh, various uh, items. So yeah, there's a there's a long history of uh, uh, esoteric weirdness surrounding Mount Shasta. Oh, you got that right. And there's a whole underground city there presumably, uh, which is very ancient, called Telos, T-E-L-O-S. Right. And the one uh, sort of ambassador person who meets hikers from time to time is a gentleman named Philos, who's very benevolent, very kind. Nobody sees him coming or going, but like you said, he'll sometimes pop down into town. And I think he's got some gold. And that goes a long way these days, and he can trade that for whatever he wants. So So he's still being seen. He's still being seen, but my understanding is the military was becoming a little obtrusive, and this group that was living in Telos has now moved up to the Yukon, where they could have uh, a lot more privacy. Right. Well, see, what what gets me about these stories about Mount Shasta is so much of it seems like it's just folklore. Right. You know, there's no there's no real evidence for the underground city or or Phylos. There was a book written uh, called uh, A Dweller on Two Planets or something yep. like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. and, and Philos wrote that supposedly, and that was yep. what 150 years ago. Um, so who knows? I mean, I've heard people say that Count Saint Germain is also, you know, under Mount Shasta and things like this. But you know, this—it's it, all. I guess. I guess it's not just subjective. It's it's more like, uh, help me out here, lore. It's 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 got a folklore quality. In other words, it could always yeah. be somebody coming along and saying, "I'm Philos." Right. Yeah. It's easily dismissed as yeah. being that. And, and and same thing goes with all the Native American legends and folklore about the mountain. But see, I would trust that light. more. I, yeah. I would trust that more. Because those people have lived around the mountain, you know, for centuries and centuries. Right. And they have a very deep reverence for the mountain. Right. In fact... Uh, up uh, on the slopes around 9,000 feet elevation near Horse Camp, which is the highest you can drive to, uh, and that's where most people start out their treks of climbing Mount Chess, which I also did that year in 97. Didn't meet Philos. <laughs> but there is a uh, steam vent at the top of Mount Shasta, mm-hmm. and the famous uh, mountaineer John Muir uh, got caught up there in a storm once with another guy. And if it wasn't for that steam vent huddling around, they would have certainly succumbed to the elements and died. But the steam vent kept them alive. And wow. up and down the mountain are all these glaciers, but they're all melting. You know, at the peak of summer, at the end of summer, I should say, September, you can barely see any glaciers on Shasta anymore. And one of the Native American prophecies is that when all the glaciers melt, we're reaching the end of times then mm. that will be the time when things start happening well you know there's also yeah i think that we're at that point i really do but but you know a lot of things that happen that are anomalous seem to point to that but i, I also think that when the the glaciers on a volcanic mountain start to melt you better start moving away from the mountain 
<laughs> yeah. yeah so landslides and so forth. But there is a ritual site that can only be used by Native Americans on Mount Shasta called uh, Cougar Meadows. And they do summertime powwows, their ritual dancing, sweat lodges up there. Um, so it's very much a charged and current Native American site. So when I was doing the Sacred Places North America book, some of those places that are still ritually used as they have been for hundreds, thousands of years, those places are, are true sacred places to the Native people and to all of us, really. I mean, if we're open and receptive to these kind of uh, ideas and, and this earth energy concept, we can gain quite a bit of insight ourselves when we go there. Uh, and I think it's for the people who are open-minded enough to accept these kind of things, we'll have the biggest breakthroughs. And I'm talking about personal breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. It could just be, you know, you're worrying about money or something like that. And you go up there and, and maybe climb the mountain or just hang out there. And you'll have a breakthrough. It'll be like, oh, well, why don't you do this and this and this? Or why don't you talk to this guy about getting this job? And things start working out for you, but only if you're receptive to receiving that kind of information. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel the real power of these sacred places hold for the everyday person. Well, especially, you know, with some place like Mount Shasta, I mean, no wonder it's considered a sacred place. I mean, you look at the area around it, and just all of a sudden, boom, there's this mountain just out, seems like just out in the middle of nowhere, just, you know, and so I mean, it's no wonder that people have been attracted to it as long as there have been people in the area. Oh, that's right, and you can literally see it for hundreds of miles around. As we saw on uh, the side of Crater Lake, you could see it off in the distance. Mm-hmm. Quite clearly, and like I said, it's like Kilimanjaro. It just uh, pokes up from the flat plains, soars high. So now, you said that uh, uh, for a while you were teaching in uh, in, in Japan. And uh, so now, there, there's a country that, um, well, I wish that uh, uh, more people from the United States uh, um, would, would get to know. I mean, there, our, our impression of Japan, you know, for people who have, who have never been there before is uh, <laughs> skewed, maybe? <laughs> that's, a good, uh, that's a good way to put it. But, um, you know, besides that, I mean, you know, you have a culture in Japan that is so homogenous that um, uh, they still um, are very shy when it comes to dealing with um, um, uh, you know, well, uh, Westerners or anybody who's, no, uh, who, who's non-Japanese. Uh, did, you, did you run into that uh, uh, when you were living there? Oh, within the first few days. <laughs> they call us gaijin. Which uh-huh. is basically a nice word. Yeah. It originally started out foreign devil. Yeah. Because yeah. they're very yeah. suspicious of anybody who's not uh, Japanese like them. But uh, what a fascinating culture that is. I mean, it's a Isn't blending it? of, of, of ancient practices and temples. And I got to live in the best city in Japan called Kyoto. Oh, which yes. was spared from the bombs of World War II. It was like Heidelberg, Germany, that they just said, this is such a cultural gem, we can't touch it. And it's a good thing they didn't, because it's all these wooden temples, the old emperors, 
Palace, uh, these yeah. Shogun castles. I lived right across the street from Nijo Castle. Oh, uh, cool. Just amazing architecture throughout. Yeah, yeah. And I used so, to be a real student of that of that of, of the whole uh, Tokugawa era and, and yeah. all that stuff. You know, um, it's interesting to think about the way we handled that when we when we occupied. I mean, we we treated them with with dignity as much as we could at the time. Think of what ISIS would do. <laughs> Well, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, w- there wouldn't be any. T- there wouldn't be any temples and 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 cultural heritage left. You know, right, right. But Japan also is ultra modern in many ways. So you mm-hmm. have these bullet trains, these high speed rails. Uh, they have really embraced technology. So it's really this juxtaposition between the ancient and the ultra modern, and that is evident in any city that you go to that you have so much uh, interplay between the two. And so there's a yearning of the Japanese people to protect their heritage and, and retain uh, their old ways, yet you have this modernism that creeps into the country uh, with all the trappings of... Uh, b- before the Western uh, culture started catching on with them, and they love our Hollywood movies. And mm-hmm. Now they all smoke and they drink. Japan yeah. used to have the longest lifespan among all the people of the world, at least in the top five. Right. Now they've dropped out. They have a word for overworking there. It's called kiroshi. And mm-hmm. literally men die in their 50s from stress, from overwork. Yeah. And that... That's their mentality, you know. They like they're all in. They're that kind of people. If they do something, they're all in and they go yeah. for it. And unfortunately, uh, to their detriment. Hmm. So, how how long were you in Japan? I was there for fourteen months. So I got mm-hmm. a uh, well, I got there and just traveled around. I hitchhiked, uh, went to all four of the main islands. When I got there, uh, then went to Hokkaido later when I got a vacation. Got interviewed and got a job for one year. They sent me over to Korea to get my uh, work visa and then uh, fulfilled my one-year contract. And I had some some students, some private students that I'd have and just wanted to save as much money as I could. And only my dad was the only family member who came and visited and he... Still talks about it as one of the best trips he ever took to come out and visit me, and then I, I gave him some money to pay off my student loans and uh, went off on my self-financed three-year trip around the world, just like those Aussies and Kiwis, and uh, <laughs> and that 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 got me started in uh, publishing and travel writing, and uh, you know the rest is history in many ways. <laughs> All right, so well uh, now, and and I know uh, because. I have the same reaction when people ask me the same question, but I have to ask you this. Of all the places that you've uh, been to, which one was your favorite? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I love archaeology. I love ancient mysteries. So really the number one for me is is the Great Pyramids, just because there are just so many questions surrounding them and the megalithic architecture, just how perfectly symmetrical and geometrical those three pyramids are compared to... Other pyramids all around there, a lot of people don't realize there's uh, dozens of other inferior pyramids, some in the state of crumbling to the ground that are just basically little mounds to others like the uh, Step Pyramid of Saqqara and the Bent Pyramid. Inferior 
pyramids, which were built later. And this is one of the great enigmas of Egypt, is that how were they able to reach their cultural and uh, architectural apex early on and then started degrading culturally to build these lesser pyramids that are now crumbling. Mm. How is it that they... Apparent culture. There was apparent culture, a high level of civilization previously. But you won't get Zahi Hawass or any (laughs) uh, Egyptologist to admit that. No, you won't. That's where you have two schools of thought, like the John Anthony West and uh, other archaeologists who want to revise the way of thinking and many of the much of the evidence is on the side of them because the sphinx shows these watermarks mm-hmm. that could have only happened when egypt was a lush jungle environment now it's of course a very harsh desert in the middle of the sahara unless you go along the nile river where you have water the rest of the country is just desolate desert so how was it that they came to the apex of their cultural evolution first, and then things started degrading from there? Mm. And like you guys say, it was apparent culture, uh, the Osiris civilization, which harkens back to the survivors of Atlantis, is what I would say is the conclusion to that question. Right, right. absolutely. Well, you know, I, I heard somebody say one time, and, and, and this was really a fascinating point. I had never really considered this before, uh, but they they said that you know if you ask a uh, um, um, uh, an archaeologist uh, about how the pyramids in Egypt were made, you know they'll, they'll tell you, oh, you know, you had had slaves or workers or whatever, you, you know, wooden rollers and you know, pushing these uh, giant stones along and, and you know, piling them on top of each other. But if you go and ask an engineer how they're done, an engineer would tell you, I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I mean, you here you have somebody who is I mean, you know, they they may know like the the, the kings of Egypt and all of that, but their training is not in engineering. Yet uh, they're the ones who, who you know who claim the knowledge that yeah, these, these were how the pyramids were built. Uh, but an engineer, somebody who knows about building things, will look at you and say. Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> or it couldn't have happened that way. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, the, back to Japan and Egypt, about a decade ago, the Japanese said, oh, we're, we're going to use our modern cranes and mm. stone-cutting techniques, and we're going to try to replicate building the Great Pyramid on a much smaller yeah. scale. Or one-tenth the size, right? They failed miserably. They couldn't right. do right. it. They had and, you know, it's funny, the project. That- it, yeah, that that story was kind of quickly killed too. Remember, I mean, you heard about it just right after they had failed to do it, and then it was like <laughs> you don't really hear much about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it's, so, it's as if yeah, it, it demonstrates something that that uh, is not a popular scientific uh, uh, position. No, yeah, they, they would rather just sweep that one under the rug and yeah. let's look over here, everybody. <laughs> but, uh, so my claim to fame on the TV show Ancient Aliens, uh, one of the two episodes I was on was actually we were talking about uh, uh, non-Madal 
in Micronesia and how this great civilization called the Venice of the Pacific was built using these giant basalt-like stone, put it in quotes, logs, like Lincoln logs, to build these structures. And they know where the quarry was. It was actually on the main island of Ponape. And this uh, particular part of the island had a little canal separating it. So there was water in the way, but no bridges ever found. And the quarry was several miles away. And they got them over to this site. Well, how did they do it? Kind of like Egypt. How did they move these massive stones and build this incredible structure? So my claim to fame on ancient aliens was putting forth the concept that there was technology that has been lost in the form of auditive levitation. And that is moving heavy objects by understanding the frequency of the heavy weight of the objects and then moving them quite effortlessly up through the air and putting them where they wanted to do it. And And usually sound sound waves for our... our, uh for our listeners out there, you're talking about sonic vibrations being used to move things. Correct. Auditive levitation. And right. if you can imagine, well, you don't have to imagine, uh, an opera singer who's able to break a wine glass with just her voice. That's an example of how auditive sound waves can affect the physical world. Now, in my book, Future Esoteric, I even have uh, illustrations of this Swedish team that went out to Tibet in the 1930s. And they observed the Tibetan monks using the technique of auditive levitation to lift giant boulders and place them up on the cliff. And the way they described seeing it is there were three concentric lines of Tibetan monks. One line were drummers. The next line were trumpeteers. The next line, and if you can just imagine like three letter C's concentric inside each other, uh, were these lines of Tibetans. And the third line were monks who were chanting. So they basically, and then the boulder was smack dab in the center of those three C's. They would reach a crescendo of sound from the trumpets, the drums, and the chanting. And this is a part I just found out recently. Then they would also use their mental abilities of focusing on that rock object. So basically when the sound reached a crescendo and the trumpets went up into the sky, the rock went up into the sky. And everybody's focus of highly trained Tibetan monks focused on that rock going up into the air and onto the cliff. And that's an example of auditive levitation. Wow. That's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. I, I think I was on the same episode. Was that the episode about the lost civilization of Mu? Yep. 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 Okay, uh, cool. I, yeah, I was on that one. Oh, we all were. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like the Mystery Islands episode. Yes. Was. Yep. Oh, that may be a different one than that one I was on. I was on one called Mysterious Pyramids. Ooh. <laughs> which, had, which talked about Pompeii, Pompeii, and, and the lost civilization of Mu, and, and so forth. 
Well, and, you know, the other thing uh, that's uh, unusual about uh, those uh, um, Balsit structures is the uh, the high amount of uh, electromagnetism um, in that area. It's like at one time or another they were, you know, highly magnetized. I don't know if that is just a natural process, you know, from their volcanic formations, uh, but uh, I had heard that at one time... Uh, some ancient civilization had used that island almost as a, uh, a typhoon steerer. That if you, uh, uh, gosh, which, which direction would that be? Would that be west of there? There used to be, uh, uh, the, uh, like uh, in the ancient world, the, the, the place where um, the most rice was being grown for whatever ancient uh, civilization existed at that time, uh, but it was uh, uh, extremely extremely vulnerable to uh, typhoons, and that Nanmadal would act almost as a uh, um, you know like a, a, a weather modification area that could steer a typhoon away from these uh, uh, crucial rice paddy areas. Wow, the, the harp of the ancient age. Exactly, exactly. You know, uh, so I mean, had, had, have you heard that before? Yeah, I mean, that was I had run across that before, and I did a little re- research on it. And it was like, hey, you know, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. Well, I do know that those those basalt uh, Lincoln logs are highly magnetized. Like mm-hmm. you said, if you go into one of those chambers at Nanmadal with a compass, it just spins wildly out of control. You can't get a reading from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each one of those basalt logs has it in there. Uh, it's it's just the magnetism of these rocks are built in. So I had not heard about steering the uh, typhoons away, but it does kind of make sense that that might be one of the functions of them. Well, and that site, like many other uh, ancient megalithic sites uh, uh, across this planet, you know, the people who now live in the area do you know they don't admit. To a building, you know, to to build it, you know, I mean, they, you know, they're not like, you know, hey, uh, yeah, we're we're the ones who build it. Yep, that's that's the ticket. No, they, I mean, they're like, nope, we didn't have anything to do with it. Somebody oh, else. They think it. it's haunted. They stay yeah. away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that happens a lot with with these ancient sacred sites. You know, the the native people generally, you know, you mentioned earlier the Native Americans having reverence for Mount Shasta, but mm-hmm. reverence often is very closely associated with fear. Correct. Uh, you know, you don't tread in certain places because it belongs to somebody else. There are still a few mountains in the Himalayas that have not been climbed, not because they can't climb them. And I'll refer to one near the city of Pokhara in Nepal called Machu Picchuri. And the literal name is fishtail because it looks like the back of a giant fish who's submerging. And on several occasions, British or I think a German team tried, other European groups went there. They hired the porters. They were half up fishtail mountain. And the native people just bailed, said, nope, not going any further, dropped their stuff and ran away. And the missions failed. And still to this day, Machu Picchu has not been climbed. Uh, they just think it's like an evil mountain or there's uh, spirits that protect it and no human is meant to go up there. So you're right. It does. It cuts both ways. Either it's highly revered 
and like a pilgrimage site. Look at Mecca in mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. The focus of a billion Muslims, they pray towards Mecca every day. You can't complete your uh, Muslim faith unless you take a pilgrimage there. Right. So some of these places absolutely have to be visited. It's, it's like a requirement, while others have to be kept away from. Hmm. I think that's uh, that's 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 very interesting. I mean, is there? Uh, uh, can you think of any other uh, uh, places uh, uh, like that around the globe that are you know, basically forbidden to go to? Well, the ones that uh, are expressively forbidden, unless they're easy to get to, they have been visited. For example, uh, Namadal. I mean, it, it had been totally uh, engulfed with jungle until the first uh, European sailors got there and even they felt a little bit uneasy now it could have been the magnetized rocks but people don't stay there long and unlike all the other archaeological sites that have hotels and a burgeoning tourism industry on the periphery there's nothing like that at Namadal you have to actually stay on the other side of Panape Island and then just do day trips there. And, well, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting because you're talking about, you mentioned earlier um, the forbidden nature of, of Namadal to, to the natives. Right. And then, and then you mentioned the site in Nepal, which has a, I mean, phonetically, it, 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 was, it was, what was the name of it? Machu? Machu Picchu. And see how close that is to Machu Picchu. It's very strange. But you have Nam Madal, and in in Canada, you have a valley called the Nahani the Nahani Valley, or it's in Nahani National Park, and it's also known as the Valley of Headless Men. And it is now basically forbidden because everybody who would go into that place, if they were ever found, most of whom were not found, <laughs> they would only find their headless body. Wow. So, the, yeah, the Native Americans knew not to go in there. Um, it's called... <laughs> Yeah, it's called Nahani, the Nahani Valley, and it's in Nahani National Park. But uh, the Dene people said, you know, you can't go in there. Um, they said that Nahani means the people over there. It's called the Naha, who who once said li- lived in there, and uh, it's for, it's forbidden. It was forbidden to the Native Americans, and finally, uh, I think the gr- the great white hunters have figured out that they don't need to be going in there because they don't come back. <laughs> so there could be a reason some of these things are for, forbidden, you know, for good reason, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and then that kind of uh, reminds me of the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, mm-hmm. which is about as high strange as you can get, because yeah. you not only have cattle mutilations that happen around there, but you get all these uh, reports of cryptoids like Bigfoot sightings around there, and it's owned by that guy Bigelow, who basically, Bigelow Aerospace, and the logo of Bigelow Aerospace is like a gray alien, a stylized, you know, the schwa, just the eyes and the almond-shaped eyes and the big head. Well, this guy Bigelow, Jesse Ventura just did an ambush uh, interview with him on his conspiracy theory show. He just seems like a normal, rich guy. 
Uh, but boy, when you look into what he's into, including the owner of the Skinwalker Ranch, now of course it's private property and you'd get arrested if you tried to go in it like they did with Ancient Aliens with uh, my friend Chris O'Brien and David Hatcher Childress were in that episode. Mm-hmm. They basically, you know, they wouldn't, uh, couldn't go much further than the gate, but uh, were basically recounting some of the things yeah. that happened there. And, and like you said, with the, the Valley in Canada, this was a site that the Native Americans said, no, we don't go anywhere near that place. Yeah, the uh, Ute, Ute tribe. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You know, I've got, a, I've got, actually, I've got a friend who is an outdoorsman extraordinaire. This guy is a surveyor for a major, major, major energy company in that area. And they, he goes out and he builds roll, ro- roads through the wilderness and finds, you know, looks at the geology. He goes off on his own, on foot oftentimes, and finds all kinds of stuff. And he actually um, was out surveying near the edge of that property. And he was doing it for the company. It, it was something to do with, with uh, the edges of their property and the edge of the the. Uh, some subdivision that was going to be coming in, and a bunch of other stuff. And he was out there surveying near the edge of the Bigelow Ranch, and he said a bunch of guys showed up, mm-hmm. just drove up, up like like they knew he was there. And they got out of their SUVs, and they were all, like, armed, you know, with automatic weapons. And asking wow. what he was doing, and why are you here, and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, and he said, I'm just doing my job. I'm surveying, you know. And he, uh, he's not somebody to be messed with either, by the way. But, but he, you know, he just did it. He said he just, he just ignored him. He said, I just ignored him and kept doing what I was doing. And then I left. I got finished and I left. So they're serious about keeping that place locked down. Yep. And, and sort of like, uh, Area 51, S4. You used to be able to go up to, uh, one of those, uh, mountains there, Freedom Peak. They shut that down too. And, you know, if you even get close to the gate, you're on not only video, but they got all kinds of sensors. They can detect vibration. They can see you in uh, infrared. Uh, all kinds of high-tech ways of keeping people out. So for your listeners who don't believe that there are still forbidden places in the world, we're here to tell you that there really are. Oh, yeah. uh, some of them, by Native American standards, have been breached. But a few like Machu Picchu and maybe uh, Skinwalker Ranch, well, now that's private property. But this valley, there's reasons why. <laughs> there's good reasons why. You might not come out of there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, they, and the native peoples around the world know these things about certain areas. I think we're coming full circle to realizing that the way the Native American people lived and really native people worldwide, if their culture is still partly preserved, realizing that this is how we do need to live. We're coming full circle to say we should respect what they have to say. We should respect the land and the animals and even give a little prayer if we kill an animal to eat it like they did and just say we have to do this to survive, not because we're just killing animals for the joy of it, but uh, respecting the sanctity of life. And I think right. we're gonna, a future human being and a civilization in this world is going to have to come to that realization collectively that we have to preserve and, and look at life as part of the whole. And we're just one of those kinks in the chain uh, that happens to have mastered our domain, but 
once you master the domain and kill all the ferocious animals, you realize we need them. We got to bring them back. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come full circle to embrace Native American philosophy one day, I believe. Yeah. They definitely knew a lot of stuff that has been forgotten. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, besides uh, uh, Mount Shasta, uh, now, uh, the one book that you have, uh, Sacred uh, Places, North America, uh, besides Mount Shasta, I mean, what, uh, what would be another good example of a sacred place in North America? Oh, well, I'll just uh, kind of go east to west and uh, let you guys pick uh, what your favorite might be. Starting on the okay. east coast, I'm utterly fascinated with the prehistoric stone chambers in New mm. England. I even did a DVD about them, uh, the, the lost prehistoric stone chambers in New England. Uh, in the Midwest, you've got your mound sites, uh, giant mound cities in uh, the Cahokia Mounds in Collinsville, Illinois. The base of Monk's Mound is larger than the Great Pyramid that had a larger population than London a thousand years ago. Then moving across the Great Plains, you have your medicine wheels, which archaeoastronomy tells us are very accurate ways of keeping time and understanding the movement of celestial bodies. And then out west here, we've got uh, the ruins of the Anasazi, who lived in these great houses, much like uh, apartment complexes of today, which sustained large populations in urban environments, but also were aligned to uh, solstice sunrise sunsets, uh, a network of roads in New Mexico, straight as narrow, like the Roman roads, they would just go straight through, and you can still see uh, remnants of that, uh, that led to other great houses in this uh, outlier area. And out here in California, down on the Arizona border, Southern California, you have geoglyphs in a small town named Blythe, which are very reminiscent of the Nazca lines of Peru, these giant geoglyphs that were carved right into the uh, desert uh, rocky motif and created these figures of humans, of horses, spiders and these long geometric lines so those are my uh top five favorite uh sites around north america okay cool well, have you ever heard about the, the what's the, the swamp in new england where the puck wedgies live tim the uh the hockamock Swamp is that what it's called? Yeah, the Hockamock, but I mean the the, the Pukwujis, I mean they're all over uh, especially right. New England and and even into here in Indiana, uh, yeah. especially especially like uh, around the uh, the ancient Indian mounds uh, areas, like in around Anderson and Evansville. I mean, there's a, a long tradition of the, uh, the 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 little people, the Pukwuji, uh, uh, you know, living on the riverbanks there. <laughs> Very reminiscent in uh, Hawaii. Well, if we were to keep going west, Hawaii is in my Sacred Place North America book, too. And they have the, the little people, the little munchkins who built all the, uh, uh, mount, or the temple sites, uh, in, in Hawaii. Is legendary, uh, geez, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I want to, it's kind of like Machu Picchu, but it's not quite that. I'll think of it in a minute. But, uh, that's kind of interesting that there's all these, native legends 
from Hawaii to North America of the little people, these little mischievous kind of uh, elfin type people that do all the heavy lifting in the dead of night. <laughs> then the next day you have this uh, great temple mount built. It's like the uh, like the shoemaker stories almost, you know, the shoemaker who would go to bed and then the elves would build uh, make his <laughs> shoes for him overnight That's right. <laughs> on a much smaller scale. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what about? I mean, I know this isn't really a sacred site, but you know, it, you reminded me of this when you were talking about the, uh, uh, especially the uh, the acoustics of uh, of levitation. The uh, um, gosh, what, what's it called? Is it Coral City? Not Coral, Coral City. Castle. Coral Castle, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's for sure. That's in modern esoteric and sacred place in North America. You know, that is the only modern built megalithic site in the world. The only one. Hmm. And megalithic meaning massive, multi-ton blocks of stone that were built single-handedly by a little 100-pound weakling guy named Ed Liskalian from uh, Latvia, and he worked in the middle of the night, and same thing. Next day, there's another brick on top of the wall that weighs four tons. How did he do it? Well, you know, they asked him all the time and tried to spy on him to see. Yeah. And uh, he was very tight-lipped. He wouldn't say anything except that he knew the secrets of the ancient Egyptians from a past life, presumably. So we're, we're, we're assuming here that he's using sonic stuff to do this. Correct. I would say he knew how to use auditive levitation. Now, if we can uh, advance to some of the things we know about ETs, they also, like the gray aliens, will carry this wand around, and they can render objects weightless by pointing this wand at something and moving it. Or the tractor beams Mm -hmm. will take a a two-ton cow up into a ship. Yeah, and so there's your magic right. wand. There's your magic wand right there. There it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if Ed Lee Scalin had anything of that nature because they say he did everything with winches and pulleys. But try to move a three-ton block solo with winches and pulleys from the quarry to the top of a, a megalithic wall in one night. Right. Let's see anybody try to do that. Well, and plus, uh, you know, he had to move everything to another location at one point, and he did it overnight in like just a couple of days. Right. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and there have been people who are like, oh, well, you know, I mean, he could just, you know, he had pulleys and levers. You know, it's it's not that hard to do it, and if. Anybody who's, who has ever been out there, you know, down there and seen these things, it's just like, yeah, right. I couldn't do that with levees and pulleys and stuff by myself. How did this guy do it? Yeah, that's, it's, uh, I, I love these skeptics, you know, who are just like, oh, it's easy to do. You know, it's like, have you been there? No, but, you know, I know physics. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, um, uh, I'm going to have to interrupt you here, or interrupt myself, actually, since I was the last one talking. Uh, we need to go and uh, do a break here, and uh, when we come back, we'll uh, continue our conversation with uh, Brad Olson. So let's go ahead and do that. Uh, I'm Tim Swartz with Mike Mutt. You are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. We will be right back with uh, more from Brad Olson, so please stay tuned. 
about the implementation of the mark of the beast. I spoke to you about that, I think, two weeks ago. We addressed Revelation chapter 13, verses 16, 17, and 18. And he calls it all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hands, or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, save he had the mark or the name or the number of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him that have understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 603 score and 6. He said Halloween 2012, just about to shed some healthy slices, cross the juggles of vein. Before it fell, pull back the veil, that's where it gets thin. Feel that knife along the side of his ribs, then crawl inside his skin. Wearing an asshole, non-believer like a bathrobe. Splash phones with acid, scar face, reversal speech. In this verse, if you want to hear Satan, when we speaking back, we're sharpening up the swords and battle axes. Darking up the skies on the doomed planet as it spins off its axis, let the trumpets go on and blow. As the earthquakes and the dirt shakes down below the ground splits and starts steaming UFOs coming through them stargates and earth gets flooded by abominations revelations try to tell the people battle with the God's patience prophesied vision what they were seeing you gonna live on your knees or die on your feet for what you believe in Proverbs 27 12 says a wise man foresees trouble coming and takes refuge but the simple pass on and are punished they're not punished in a punitive way I'm thinking that I can be waking up early today. I'm thinking the early birds, the person gets up and they get a taste. I'm thinking it's strange, a little bit different now the time and it's changed. Cause nowadays it's in the world to deliver a bird to my place. A first name is what I've been stuck with since an earlier age. Never did give me a nickname, but get it, I'm flipping the page. Just give it a minute and I'ma be living up in a particular place. But I'm living is similar to the religion that tell me I gotta quit living to get in the gates. Man, I could be tripping, but lately living with demons. Sleep 33, sun is sleeping. I'm wide awake, out here breathing. I'm shaking like it was freezing. Pray to the one to believe in. Not even thinking the one I believe in could be the one peeping up into my window this evening. You would have believed it if you knew what I believed in. This voodoo telekinesis, genetic effect to be just reject and neglect belief. Or walk with the beast hand in hand. Talk to me in words I can't understand. This is the plan of man. The world is hemorrhaging. The world is in travail. Romans 8 tells us that. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, 
designated texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing! Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Only in the forest can you see this. <laughs> but nothing beats the moment you see that. Cool! That's your child's eyes opening up to a world of possibilities. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. And you might just see this. <laughs> Visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz. Only on PSN Radio. Edge in the wee morning hours of July 27th. It's dark out there, so be careful if you go outside. And uh, <laughs> we're back with our very special guest, Brad Olson. Before the break, we were talking about Coral Castle, but Brad, I know that uh, you probably had all kinds of other uh, interesting experiences other than uh, um, mysterious sights. Um, anything else you want to talk about in terms of UFOs or strange creatures or strange phenomena, the paranormal? Yeah, well, when I was working on the Sacred Places books, I would often make note that sometimes these sites also had paranormal uh, experiences surrounding them. And I didn't get into it as much in the Sacred Places books, just make, making mention, for example, Mount Shasta was renowned for Bigfoot sightings or um, some of the old cathedrals in Europe started out as just pagan ritual sites and then later became early churches and then were torn down and became uh, cathedrals. And it wasn't until I I started working on the uh, future esoteric and modern esoteric that that I could start getting into more of the metaphysical aspects of some of these sites. Not all of them, just, just a few really have these extra sensory type uh, sites surrounding them. And, and, and many of them are also at the intersection of ley lines. And I found that very fascinating and started uh, 
looking into that more deeply in modern esoteric, what exactly these ley lines were. And we were talking earlier on the show about forbidden sites or or really high, strange energy sites. And many of those are when the yang lines cross. There are yin lines and there are yang lines. The yin line, the feminine energy, are more curvaceous, just like women. <laughs> and the yang lines are more linear or straight, like men. Uh, hmm. And th- it, it took me a while to, to understand all this, and it, many of it, much of the research goes back to this guy, uh, Sir Alfred Watkins, who did the first survey of ley lines in the UK. Right. Uh, and his book was called The Old Straight Track. And he found that many of these old sacred features of the landscape corresponded to these lines. Right. They just went right through them. And some of them, like uh, a holy well or some of the barrows, which are these megalithic uh, tombs but may have had other purposes, or Stonehenge, the, the stone circles and so forth, uh, have these healing properties to them. And maybe that's why subconsciously people continue to go there on pilgrimage. And a lot of times you say, oh, I'm going to the England, I want to go check out Stonehenge. But if you hang out there long enough, you may have some of these, these breakthroughs that we were talking about earlier, if you're open and receptive to the knowledge. And I think this is the power of th- these ley lines. Right. Uh, they, you know, it, it, it may have an effect on the... On the uh your personal electromagnetic field, you know, your brain is an electromagnetic field generator, and it's also a transmitter and receiver. So it may open you up to spirituality regardless of what your point of view is. Correct. And isn't it interesting that southern England gets the most amount of crop circles around the world, mm-hmm. which are happening right near uh, some of these ley lines that uh, Sir Alfred Watkins was describing. Uh, not only that, but some of these ley lines have the same kind of properties that when you go to visit them, you can go into the middle of them. Compasses spin out of control. Uh, there's this discernible electromagnetic presence within some of these authentic crop circles. And maybe it's worth our while to define what an authentic crop circle is rather than uh, a Doug and Dave phony crop circle that were used using boards and the stalks are all broken and you can see footprints and they're just kind of crude designs sure you can do that humans have done that but these authentic crop circles are when the stalks are interwoven kind of like if you put your fingers together in both hands and then press down yeah, well, you know, Brad, uh, also a lot of these uh, crops and these crop circles show uh, signs that they've been microwaved. You know, you have the nodes that have e- exploded. And so not only do you have uh, where they just uh, act like they just laid down rather than being crushed down, they, they show examples of being uh, uh, irradiated uh, with something. Another reason to suggest that there's no way Doug and Dave with their planks could have created anything like this. If you look closely at the stalks, is the smoking gun, and also very tiny metallic particles are also left behind. Of course, you also have 
many eyewitnesses, including a few that have been filmed, of orbs in the sky just right. zipping around, and then you see the crop circle itself just uh, depressing itself into the field. It's these questions like this that are just so astonishing. It's no wonder the mainstream media banishes all the crop circles when they appear every summer. And then did you know the, the one of the biggest crop circles of all? It's called the Milk Hill Galaxy. It's like over 200 circles, larger than a football field. There were some uh, crop circle investigators that put a bounty on that particular site that says if anybody can reproduce this in any way you want, but it can't be broken stocks, it has to be of this authentic nature, we'll give you 100,000 English pounds. So mm. far, nobody has come to the challenge to uh, try to replicate that. Yeah. Well, they won't. Yeah, no. <laughs> Nobody can. Nobody can. That's right. Well, you know, you you made a good point though about the uh, <clears throat> about the orbs, uh, glowing balls of light that are uh, being seen around the areas where the crop circles have formed. You know, uh, there have been reports from uh, the, the 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 artists who uh, claim that they have uh, made some of the more complex uh, uh, crop circles, and they say that they have experienced themselves uh, a very high high weirdness when they go out to, uh, to, to to construct these projects. I mean, you know, they see orbs, they hear things, you know, yep. they they almost, uh, they, they say a lot of times they almost develop kind of like a uh, like a psychedelic state of mind, uh, and, and not through artificial means. <laughs> mm. The crackling sounds. Well, I have a chapter in the book Future Esoteric called Crop Circles, and when I was writing this chapter a few years ago in 2012, uh, there was a big article in one of the English newspapers, I'm pretty sure it was The Guardian, that described a police officer, a very respectable member of society, who was driving by and saw these people out in a crop circle. He thought they were just tourists taking pictures or something. But for some reason, he stopped and he, he went out and the, the people didn't see him. And he starts getting closer and he realizes, wow, they're really tall, Nordic-looking, wearing these, like, silver metallic jumpsuits. They finally noticed him. I think he shouted at them, hey, what are you doing? And they looked at him, and then in a split second, they ran off and just, they were gone. So it, it would appear that they may have been the creators themselves, possibly Pleiadians, who came down to check their work out, and it was a, a brand-new fresh crop circle right next to Silbury Hill, which is this hmm. megalithic mound site in southern England, much like our mounds here in North America. Right. Uh, and crop circles appear near them all the time, just like down near Stonehenge, too. <laughs> you know, it, it, that almost reminds me of there was a, 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 a cartoon that used to run called uh, Rocco's Modern Life. And there was uh, uh, one of the episodes, one of the characters had a, a lawnmower that had gone crazy and then, you know, it drug him along. And at one point, it had constru- it, it made a crop circle, a great big, huge crop circle at a golf course. And at the end of the program, you see this UFO hovering over it, and the aliens are looking at it. And one alien turns to the other and says, who keeps making these things? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, I was like, go, go ahead, go ahead. 
Well, just that not only are the designs quite elaborate and, and cryptic in many ways, but they seem to also be purveying some kind of knowledge to us. Yes. Uh, the, the images that I have in sacred places, or I'm sorry, well, I do have it in sacred places Europe. There's a, a section on crop circles, but also in future esoteric is this one that appeared near a big radar station, which happens to be searching for extraterrestrial life. And if it wasn't so obvious for them to say, hey, we're here, it was this, uh, this disc with an alien face next to it. And the disc is also, it can be interpreted and is basically saying, uh, there's not much time left, humans. You better get your S together and, uh, come together as a human race and save this planet. Um, mind blowing in and of itself. But, uh, also, that occurred near this uh, radar station was another crop circle, which was mimicking the coded message that was sent up by one of these probes in 1970 to somehow make uh, <coughs> our attempt to reach out towards extraterrestrial nations and say, this is us, this is our DNA, we have two strands, uh, this is what we look like, <coughs> we're the third planet from the sun kind of thing. And the crop circle came back with an answer and said, this is us, and we have these great big heads, and we have multiple strands of DNA, more than two, and we come from this planet, from this solar system. So to me, it's like, how much more obvious can it be that these are messages from extraterrestrials attempting to give us some kind of pertinent message that uh, strangely gets ignored by the mainstream media. You know, you had talked earlier about <clears throat> um, these areas also, uh, you know, like being a hotbed in the uh, ley line crossings. Yet, um, you know, England is not the only place where you see this. Um, but why would this area of England be uh, really the uh, the only place? in the world where you see these complex crop circles being formed. Now, yes, there have been crop circles seen all over the planet, but very rarely are they as complex as the ones seen in England. Yeah, I mean, that's the million-dollar question, really. Why southern England? Why here? Well, I guess if I were to venture an answer, it would be, first of all, you have some of the oldest Neolithic monuments in Britain, are located in southern England. You've got Avebury, you've got Stonehenge, which we talked about, Silbury Hill, and many of these uh, West Kennet Long Barrows uh, structures, megalithic sites. And as we were also talking about, ley lines that intersect down here. Now, you could make the argument that everywhere has ley lines, and it probably does, but maybe these are two of these uh, really potent yin lines that intersect through there. And Sir Alfred Watkins, he even named them. One of them is the St. Michael's line, right. uh, and the other is the St. Mary's line. Um, of course, he was a religious uh, person, as most people in the 19th century were, and ascribed them to the chapels associated with Christianity. But I think the bigger picture is they go way beyond Christianity, 
and go way back into the Neolithic era. Sure. Well, like you said, I mean, most sacred sites are built on top of older sacred sites going all the way back. Um, you know, Christianity sort of did that, I guess, as a form of, of supplanting the indigenous or what it, at that time had been the indigenous belief system. Mm-hmm. And saying now this is our sacred site, but those sites may have originated thousands of years ago. Absolutely, and and we know that Christianity is great at adapting the old ceremonies, right. religious holidays. They just change the name a little bit, but still yeah. they're really pagan in nature. A lot of them are for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. What better way to bring the the pagan population un- into your fold, though, by exactly. adopting you know the yeah, the local uh, uh, belief systems? <laughs> We're going to do away with your fertility ritual, but look, we have rabbits and eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You call it a story. We call it Easter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even even the birth of Christ. Uh, this is how the movie Zeitgeist starts out. That if you were watching the sun. It making its farthest prog- progress uh, to the south during the winter solstice, there yeah. would be several days when it just stacks up at the same spot. Right. Kind of like if you're imagining a long elliptical uh, round object in the sky, if you're looking right at the plane of the elliptical, all those four or five days around the winter solstice would be exactly the same. But the first date where you could discern the sun is moving back to the north for the longer days would be December 25th. And this right. was also the, the birth date of Horus. So you have a lot of similarities to Egyptian gods also co-opted well, also, by Christianity. Well, it was also the, uh, Saturnalia for the, for the Romans. But, you know, one thing about it is that if you read the account, no time of year is given. And even when you read about the shepherds and what's going on with the shepherds in the fields, that time of year there would have been those shepherds in the fields, all the livestock are rounded up and put in pens. So, you know, most likely that event happened in the late spring or the early fall. Um, exactly. His yeah. birthday wasn't even around well, he, December. Yeah, they, they just moved it to that date because so many prevalent pagan holidays fell. On the uh, the isn't is it the winter solstice? Yes, yeah, yes, on the winter yeah. solstice. So yeah, that's why they did it. I mean, because they knew that they could kind of trump all those in, in a variety of places by doing that. <laughs> it's a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, uh, Brad, I wanted to ask you about uh, um, your. Uh, I, I guess are they? Uh, it is a series of books, uh, the future esoteric. Well, it's the esoteric, the esoteric series. series. So the first yeah. book, the way I describe it is, the first book is modern esoteric. So it's looking at all the ancient traditions, uh, lost continents, and antediluvian societies that led up to this modern age, including all the uh, Pythagorean theorems into sacred geometry, the secret societies, and where we are today and then future esoteric picks up from there and then has a decidingly forward-looking view and that's when i get into all the alien et ufo issues uh as they relate to how our future humanity is going to relate to them including the final section in future esoteric called utopia when i also examine free energy and uh, some societal 
issues such as the end of money uh, as a way that we're going to evolve into this uh, timeline one or the golden age when humanity comes together and uh, creates the kind of society that does protect the natural world, that does look after the poorest of the poor rather than discarding them. And this is how Gene Roddenberry imagined the Star Trek series. And Star Trek, a lot of people don't know this, but has quite a bit of esoteric information embedded into the storyline. For example, in no scene in Star Trek will you ever see the use of money. If you want something, you just say chocolate shake and it comes out of the container. You don't even have to put a token or anything in there. So Gene Roddenberry was actually sitting in on these uh, is it Council of Seven, these seances in the early 1960s that were supposedly tapping into future humans of that age, of the 23rd or 24th century telling them this is how we live this is these are some of the things that we've done and now we do explore space and we do it with this principle of the prime directive and the prime directive is actually why the benevolent ETs do not make themselves known because they can't get involved in our internal politics or it's like their karma will then become our karma and they don't want to do that if you can understand this, it's perfectly understandable why. Why would you want to get involved uh, with someone? Supposedly they are involved, and they have been all along. Well, they have been all along, and they will uh, do if things. You believe, if you believe they're seconds. aliens. If you really believe they're aliens, which I, I still don't, really. But, yeah. yeah I, think well, they're, I think they're other dimensional beings. and Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. I agree. And, and, I mean, when you look deeply at it, who they are and their abilities, they certainly yeah. have the ability to transcend dimensions, yeah. which, you know, we, we can barely even wrap our mind around, but science tells us there's 13 dimensions out there. Yeah. So what's they, going in in all this space? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the thing about Roddenberry, too, is, and I actually have a chapter in my book about this that talks about this. I think I do. Um, and I have put it elsewhere too, from time to time. Actually, it may be on my on my website, on my blog too. But Gene Roddenberry also, uh, when he wrote the first uh, pilot for Star Trek called "The Cage" or "The Menagerie," mm-hmm. and there were two versions, and one was longer than the other. But it's basically uh, Richard Shaver's Dero is is all it is. It's it's a subterranean race decimated by uh, a nuclear war that takes human beings for breeding stock. Now, the subterranean uh, race has the ability to manipulate uh, matter. They have the ability to create realistic holograms and to enter the mind and make you think you're seeing things that aren't there. I mean, everything that he put in that story is straight out of the so-called Shaver mystery. See? Very esoteric knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's like he was allowed to do this because in some ways... They have to show us what they're up to. They have to give us little hints that this is what they're doing. Either you mean, you mean like secret it. societies do? Absolutely, <laughs> exactly. They have to give us some symbols or signs, or sometimes come straight out with it, like embedding these concepts in TV or movies. Most people say, "Oh, well, that's just science fiction." 
But others of us say, well, they're doing things for a reason, and Star Trek didn't get the green light to be on network TV without a reason. There was a very, very good reason that it was on there, and that is to say to the people who want to look a little deeper into this that there is embedded knowledge and information to give you some insight into what's really going on with the ETs. Well, you know, th- there were some interesting things that, that Roddenberry did. You know, he he had all the people of Earth working together as one. He, uh-huh. uh, he had the first interracial kiss on television. Um, <laughs> I mean, he did a lot of things that really pushed the envelope for, oh, for yes. the time. And, uh, you know, someone once said, well, how come, you know, there's, you look at the crew of the Enterprise and you see, you know, you see people from China or you know, or Japan, as Sulu was supposedly from. You see yep. a Russian and a, an American, you know, black, white. And how come you don't see any any Muslims? And someone else said, "Well, that's because it's the future." <laughs> well, somehow there has to be a way to embrace everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying. You know, <laughs> some problems will have to be solved here before we can even be thinking about going to the stars. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and wouldn't this be the benchmark for uh, how we would be accepted into uh, whatever kind of confederation of planets there is out there? There's been many names given to it that humans are going to have to collectively grow up. They're going to have to get along, aren't they? Absolutely. That there's no way around that. That we have to put an end to war and suffering and uh, this us or them mentality. It's all or nothing, really. You know, it's, it's like you know, it's okay. If you want to be a New Ager, that's your business. If you want to be a Christian, that's your business. You know, if you want to be a, a Buddhist, that's your business. But it's when you have the, the groups that say, "If you don't think like we do, we will kill you." We right. will chop your head off. See that that crap slows everything down. Yes, we we can't have a space program if we're having to worry about somebody blowing up our launch site or our research facility. You see what I'm saying? Yep. You guys know the magazine Nexus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, yes. great magazine. Love it. Yeah. yeah. I remember reading in uh, an article once about the secret space program that uh, we've been backward engineering technology for decades now, and we have these crafts. The triangular craft is ours. Even uh, dish-shaped crafts are ours. They're coming out of S4 in Area 51. They have places where they can build them and test fly them and even go off on missions. But there's a problem that uh, these these Air Force-trained pilots are having once they get... Uh, out outside of Earth and want to go even just around our solar system, but certainly going beyond if they were going to use this technology that brings the craft up to nine-tenths the speed of light, and then basically it is up to the pilot and the crew to consciously know where they're going into that next step and then hmm. getting there. Well, the problem they're having with the Air Force pilots, according to this Nexus article, is that these jarheads in the military were trained to kill and and had this military training that was not Buddhist nature at all. And apparently that's what it takes to be a pilot. You have to be 
almost like an enlightened being to do it. Because mm. once you meet this qualification of getting a craft spinning at the speed of light, or very close to it, just under, that everybody in that ship has to be of a Buddhist nature to be able to get that craft going to where it is. Now, there are people like uh, Billy Meyer, who obviously was not, and could be taken along for the ride, and and so there is a workaround in that regard, but certainly the pilots and those flying it were of an enlightened Buddhist nature, and the Air Force doesn't train pilots to be that way at all. So, so by enlightened nature, do you mean that they're totally still in their spirit? They're totally calm? That, that that's right. And, and, and just like we hear, for example, the book uh, Autobiography of a Yogi. I read that while I was traveling through India, and each chapter is about a master who has some kind of superhuman ability. And the master of all masters is this guy named Babaji, who lives up in the Himalayas and is ageless and is timeless and has been there for thousands of years and can manifest at will. And this is also what we hear about uh, the gray aliens. Uh, For example, Aleister Crowley had this relationship with an ET and even drew it. It looks just like a gray Name right. was Lamb, Lamb, who would just physically phase into this reality when it wanted to. So we were talking about interdimensional species. They obviously have this ability to basically walk through walls if they wanted to. Uh, right. And you can't keep these highly advanced ones caged at all. They'll just split. They'll just walk hmm. right out of there. Yeah. So so when we're talking about this incredible human ability like a Babaji or an advanced E.T. Pleiadian, uh, I mean, it, you, how can we even wrap our minds around it? We don't even have any concept for how this is possible. So obviously we have a long way to go to even get to the Roddenberry uh, model of civilization 300 years from now, but then a much longer way to go to get to this enlightenment state where everybody on the planet is of such ways and we can just jump in one of these interdimensional crafts and go anywhere we want in the universe then. Yeah, I'm having my doubts it'll ever happen. I just don't think human nature will allow it. Will allow it. I remember in uh, Carl Sagan's book Contact, mm-hmm. uh, the, the character played by Jodie Foster, the first question she was asked is how did you get to the early technological stages in your society and not blow each other up. And that's exactly what we are today. <laughs> yeah, how do you exactly. get beyond that? Because we need to know this real badly. Or, you know, how, how, how do you keep from, you know, making a super collider that one of these days you're going to be doing an experiment and that's going to be it. It's yeah. all over. Switzerland and France become a big black hole and just... Exactly. All the Germans and everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Well, gentlemen, uh, unfortunately, we are getting uh, uh, close to uh, uh, running out of time here. So, uh, Brad, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, uh, let our listeners uh, know where they can uh, find out more about you, uh, websites, uh, where they can find your books, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Well, to learn more about me, it's uh, bradolson.com. That's O-L-S-E-N. Or to check out any of my books or the books I publish is cccpublishing.com and if people order a book off that website they go through 
my office and I'm able to uh, sign copies for people if they're my books. I also publish other authors. Or you could uh, find me on Facebook. I do uh, Esoteric Book Series on Facebook, uh, Esoteric Series on YouTube uh, channel I have, and Sacred Places 108 Destinations on Facebook as well. Uh, or if you want to see my three-year trip around the world and know more about my first book, World Stompers, I have a website called stompers.com. And there uh, you see my younger self traversing around the globe. <laughs> and uh, is there, uh, uh, are, are you currently working on a, a new book or anything like that you can give us a hint about? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, I actually have a third book in the Esoteric series that I'm working on called Beyond Esoteric, which still has about two, three years to go. And that's because I have a five-book deal right now with an Italian author named Leo Lyon-Zagami. So I have to uh, publish the next four out of five books of his. One of them is already out called The Last Pope, Magic, Masons, and Occultism in the Decline of the Catholic Church. You can see that on the CCC Publishing website. Or any of the books that we talked about today, you can do a keyword search on Amazon and find them there as well. All right, fantastic. Well, Brad, thank you yep. very much for uh, being with us tonight on the Outer Edge. It's uh, uh, I just I just have the feeling that we've just barely uh, skimmed the surface <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> uh, of everything that you've done and written about. So I guess uh, I guess we're going to have to invite you back again so we can uh, continue more, <laughs> continue on uh, with, with with more of this. <laughs> oh, I'd love to come back. You guys are great. Yeah, we'll Thank you so much for having me on. It's been uh, enlightening on my end too. Well, man, we really appreciate it, and uh, just uh, keep us keep us posted about what's going on with you, so we can uh, know what to talk about next time we have you back. Sounds great, guys. I look forward to it already. All right. Well, thank you very much, Brad and Mike. Uh, this is Tim Swartz. You have been listening to the Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Thank you for being with us, and be sure to tune in again this time next week for another fascinating program. So from all of us, thanks again, and good night. <laughs>